Let's please give her a warm round of applause. Hi, thank you so much for coming. Um, thanks to Skylight for having us. Um, I'm just going to read a really short section of the title story. Um, I have a really short attention span, so I'm just assuming that everyone else does. Um, this, uh, this is the, the last story that I finished and the one that took me the long And it takes place in an anatomy workshop, um, and they're dissecting bodies. Um, yeah. Dead girls. Her name is Gracie. It was Frank's idea to name her. Frank, your dissection partner, a ponytailed rolfer with a limp. She looks like a Gracie, he pronounced, pulling back the white sheet. Two hours later, he asks, you ever seen somebody like Gracie up close before? He means somebody dead. No, you tell him, never. And then you're flooded with a rolling, queasy sensation, the one that feels like lying even when every word is true. Or maybe it's just the reek of formaldehyde a six-week roiling in your skull. You hear the instructors, though, from far away. Skin is an organ, he keeps saying, how it pulls and breathes. But all you see is the stunned yellow of Gracie's back, the blunt dead heap of her. Tiny webbed capillaries warm up from the deep. Four tables, four corpses in the room, formaldehyde pumped and wobbly, bald as aliens. They're naked, obviously, but still it shocks you, this nakedness, cold and raw and face down too. You tell yourself the dead can't be wounded, they're already dead. You make it a joke, four corpses walk into a bar. You and Frank spent the first half hour stalling, cleaning and recleaning utensils. The first instruction seemed easy enough. Place the cadaver prone. But then you mulled over the word prone. Was it just a matter of lying down, or were there in fact degrees of proneness? Frank said it had to do with the legs, opened or closed, and you kept thinking of the thing monks do, or nuns before the cross. Minutes later, you realized that was prostrate. Finally, you typed the word into your phone and read out the definition. One, likely or liable to suffer something, typically something regrettable or unwelcome. Two, lying flat, especially face downward. You and Frank stared at the body and then looked up, as though seeing each other for the first time. You who were suddenly supple with life. You who were about to commit regrettable and perhaps unwelcome deeds. You've enrolled in a four-day anatomy workshop, shelled out a deposit you couldn't afford because you've been having panic attacks late into the night, because you're terrorized by the beating of your own heart, by the blood going in and out of your chest and what would happen if it suddenly stopped, because yoga made you laugh and acupuncture made you weep, and because you were beginning to think there was something wrong with you. But the joke's on you because now you're standing in a room full of yogis and massage therapists, rolfers like Frank, the sort of people who have long and earnest discussions about deep tissue and somatic memory, hidden geographies beneath the skin, exactly the people you'd hope to avoid. The instructor is a tall, loose-limbed man named Jeremiah who stalks the room and calls you all somonauts, voyagers casting out into inner deep space. But there's nothing astral about it, so far as you can see. You think of it more like spelunking, like cool, dark caves. Once you get past the smell, it's practically intoxicating, like peering inside your own skin. Jeremiah crosses the country hosting workshops like this one. 
You picture him like a one-man traveling circus, cadavers in tow. He preaches the subtle beauty of organs, chemises arms to illustrate the movements of the heart. In every cut, he says, you're opening a door, a portal into the great beyond. You watch him move through the room, nodding emphatically and making overlong eye contact, and you hope he doesn't turn out to be some sort of cult leader. Cults have been on your mind lately because of the guru. Two months ago, Vic, your boss, gave you a box of cassette tapes to transcribe, old recordings of the guru from the 70s. The guru's young disciples called themselves the Beloved, and Vic had once been one of them, traveling in a bright and wild caravan across India. The tapes are one of his pet projects, an archive of the guru's extemporaneous musings, a project that's now been foisted onto you. A part of you fears that really Vic gave you the tapes because he detected in you some sort of spiritual paucity and he wants to redeem you. Recently, he looked up from his computer screen to declare that all people struggle with one of three things, anger, ambition, or lust. I don't struggle with any of those, you said, in part because it was true and in part because you didn't want to hear where this was going. A week later, you found the tapes on your desk. Your job is to edit a monthly newsletter that calls itself a magazine and occasionally to write, though in truth you've been doing less and less of this lately. Your office is in the UN building, hidden in a decayed and yellowing back hallway. Every morning you pass through grand foyers blazing with light, long carpeted hallways lined with galactic assembly rooms. Then you turn into the shoddy ruins of the press wing, crowded desks heaped together, halls littered with the guts of discarded computers. You turn once more into the lightless backpack passageway where they stow the people who barely count as press, like you. When he told Vic you needed to cut out early a few days this week and the next, he said yes because he always says yes to you. This is part of the problem. What kind of class was all he asked, and for a split second you considered telling him the truth. Self-defense, you said. Now you and Frank take turns holding the skin taut and slicing in axial lines as the manual instructs. Embalming fluid beads up, dribbles and leaks, in oily wet darkness, Gracie's insides opening like burst fruit. The strangest thing isn't cutting someone open, you think, but the fact that mostly, mostly people stay intact, that they move through their days unpunctured, that they don't go spilling out all the time. When Jeremiah says that not everyone will get all the way to the heart, you look at Frank across the table. But we will, you say. And Frank nods as if he can see it in your face. This is what you came for. This is the whole thing. The black hole in your chest. The unseeable thing you have to see. Darlene, says Frank, we're about to start on the axilla now. He's talking not to you, but to Gracie. You're supposed to do this. You're supposed to talk to your corpse. But though you've now touched and prodded and manhandled a corpse, though you've now posed and sharpied and sliced a corpse, this is the one thing you cannot, will not do. Gracie's face, when you finally manage to look at it, is a kind of blankness you've never seen, like she's just had the fright of her life and exited swiftly from her skin. It's not such a simple thing, you realize, to stand above a dead body, knife in hand, and feel completely blameless in the whole affair. Jeremiah pauses at your table, registers the movement of your hands. You can press harder, he says, resting a blue-gloved hand on yours. You feel yourself go stiff, but the scalpel moves certain and sure, and the membrane separates, a clean, straight line. See, says Jeremiah, talk to her while you do it. I will, you lie, I will. You picture a satellite bouncing signals into empty space, your voice naked and undone. If anything, you'd like to apologize, though for what you're not exactly sure. Your brain whispers half maniacally, half sincere, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for killing you.
It was great. Thank you. So I think the first thing I wanted to ask you about is something that pops up in a lot of these stories, and it's this idea of running away. We have a lot of girls that are running to things, running from things, and I'm thinking specifically about Coming To, which is the story where these women are shot by the governor, and they live through it and testify against him, but then nothing happens, and they just have to go back to work. So there's this idea of women not being heard, and I thought that lined up in an interesting way against these women that are running away. And I wondered what you thought about that, like, in the way the novel was formed. Yeah, um... Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, that makes me think about, like, if you're running away, there must be something you're running towards, but, like, what is it? And I feel like in a lot of cases they don't know, and that does maybe have something to do with, like, the sort of, like, in-between interstitial space that um, I think I was thinking about when I was writing these. And, like, I think I think that is also connected to this idea of, like, can you actually tell stories about violence and trauma um, and I feel like yeah most of the stories are sort of like erring towards like no you can't or like they can't actually be heard even if they are told I don't know if that makes sense sure yeah and there are two stories in here it's it's dead girls and choreography choreograph and these are the only two stories that I really explicitly saw people sort of taking control of the body and doing something with the body in Dead Girls um, we see this woman learning to dissect the body in choreograph we see this man that choreographs people but then we also see the narrator's sister who choreographs the voices of people she hears and the voices in her head Mm -hmm. so I guess I'm thinking here if you can talk a little about uh, instances or those instances in the novel where people, these women, uh, work to sort of regain control and to be heard, where, like, society is sort of failing them, they're failing, men are failing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, like, thinking about choreograph, there's, like, um, yeah, there's the actual choreographer, um, Nijinsky, and then, like, there's also his sister, who he's sort of, like, posing and, like, using as, like, his test case study as like his own body and seeing like how her body moves um yeah so I sort of yeah and that story I was sort of thinking about it in terms of like that like in terms of the the narrator's relationship with her own with her sister and how um they're sort of she's sort of trying on like these different poses and sort of like I think that's something yeah that's something I'm interested in in a lot of these stories like the sort of like blurring of identities and stories um I think yeah in Dead Girls yeah I think I wanted to yeah I wanted to end with that that story because the the first story felt like um a sort of refusal to to narrate for the narrator to narrate her own story um like it ends with this scene of her um, thinking she's run away and she's thinking that maybe she'll call home um, and she knows all the words that she's going to say um, to make it okay, but instead she hangs up the phone and sort of refuses to to say what's happened to her. Um, and I think in, in Dead Girls, too, there's sort of like an, an acknowledgement of the, the violence of narrativizing certain events, but also like 
a willingness to to move towards it anyway. Um, yeah. No, there are a lot of really interesting instances in that story. So we don't just have whatever the initial trauma is, right? She's like she's on the phone and um, something's happened, like she's been abused and she's not sure and she's waiting for tests back. But then there's also um, the thing where she sort of her boss uh, inappropriately touches her and inappropriately says things to her and she just sort of blames herself and then we right. see the new the new intern right that stands up right? right and so she gets to watch this woman's body in this instance do the thing that she should have that she felt she should have done right and then later she's touching this literal corpse of a body yeah i think that's like so true that sometimes it's really like um you have to see it happen to someone else before you can acknowledge um, what happened. Like she, yeah, she sort of like blames herself for this like creepy, like minor Harvey Weinstein-esque boss. Um, and she's sort of like, am I too accommodating? Am I too pretty, too ugly? Like, what did I do wrong? Um, and it's only when like the same thing happens to someone else that she like actually has some like visceral emotional response um so yeah i don't know yeah Yeah, so much of this book i think sort of lines up with women that are experiencing trauma and then questioning their own experience questioning whether or not their body is real there's a lot of talk about realness and them wondering if they're real wondering if the place they're in is real like there's this in-betweenness right of them not feeling stable are their experiences real so I'm really interested in this idea of trauma and realness and how these things are sort of grappling back and forth throughout the book and a lot of the stories yeah yeah it's interesting like um I don't know, like, a few people have, like, read this as, like, really, like, a story or, like, a book that is about death, um, which is, like, you know, like, it's called Dead Girls, so that's completely fair. Um, (laughs) uh, But I I didn't think of it that way when I was writing it. I thought of it more as, like, thinking about deadness as a way of sort of being, like, in this in-between state in your own life, Um, like... Like, what does it mean to be, like, dead in your own lifetime and, like, um, exist in this kind of, like, in-between state, like, this aftermath? Um, I forget what the question was. <laughs> I think I said something was interesting and then glanced at you and waited for um, There are a lot of ghosts in here, too. And I think one of the times I was really interested in, in sort of ghost as something that's not just a literal ghost was, um, I'm not sure which story it was in. It's the one where um, her cousin's father has died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So her cousin's father has died, and she has trouble remembering what her father looked like because now all she has is sort of the memory of him and pieces of him are starting to fade so what he looks like in the face I think is one of the first things to go so there's this idea that her memory of him is sort of a ghost of him so I think a lot of the novel is these things that aren't there anymore we have a lot of moves from childhood to adulthood and sort of trying to stretch back right there's secrets between girls or all these things that aren't quite happening which I think plays into the in-betweenness yeah I like that idea that um but, like, memory is a kind of, like, ghost. Um, yeah. Uh, again, wasn't a question, Emily. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in Nausicaa, you talk about... Um, I think there's a place where you said places become stories and gaps between these stories become more stories until finally talking begins to resemble a map 
everywhere leading everywhere at once. So we've talked a little about your book being about in-betweenness. And so I think your book is also sort of a map because it's all those in-between parts. And I wondered sort of broadly what you thought your book was about, which I think is a big question, but a literal Mm -hmm. question this time. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I think... um, I do think of it like as a book about um, trauma and like sort of like the weird formlessness that that like that that sort of like pushes you into like where the world is like not quite certain anymore um, and where yeah I don't know but at the same time I feel like I wasn't completely I don't know I wasn't really aware of that when I was writing it it was only like afterwards or like as I was like finishing the last story that I was like oh this is what and maybe this is what it's about is it about do you think it's about girlhood yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) um yeah girls and as being the sort of in-between space right yeah okay I wondered, there's a section, I wondered if I could get you to read. It's the section on 138 with Molly. Um, And then I'll I'll let you read it, and then I'll ask you my my question. Um, The one that starts Molly and I. Mm -hmm. Okay. Molly and I sat on the stoop one night talking. What do you want, why do you want to be an astronaut, I asked. She thought for a minute and said in Hindi, there was a woman in a spaceship. I nodded, not understanding. There was a woman in a spaceship and it exploded above the earth. She meant Kalpana Chala on the space shuttle Columbia, I realized. Explosion, Molly said again, using the English word and pointing at the sky. We both looked up. So I guess my question for you is, um, why? Uh, like, why did that little girl want to be an explosion? And sort of how does she, how does this little girl who wants to be this explosion in this guy connect to the other girls in the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of like just realizing now how many like spaceships there are in this book. Like, I didn't really realize that until right now. Um, yeah, there's like a lot of spaceships and aliens. And like, I think like in this case, and like also like with like Edie, who like one thinks she's an alien. Um, I think like sort of like outer space and aliens are kind of like like a good out from sort of the like false choices that like girlhood forces you to make or like adolescence maybe. Um, yeah, it just seems like a much more appealing option. <laughs> No, I think a lot of this book is about that, right? uh, The idea of being a girl, being so difficult and being so hard, and the idea of being an alien or a ghost or projecting yourself elsewhere, disassociating from your body, being this really interesting thing, this way to escape. I think Edie is a story where it comes up a lot. I was thinking a lot about Edie. Um, Edie's this little girl who uh, tells everyone that she's an alien and convinces everyone to do these sets of things so they can be an alien like her. And then we sort of later see that Edie has a terrible home life and has probably like been abused in, in multiple ways, probably from a young age. And so we were seeing her trauma like really enacted. And then the other character um, in the story, the narrator, feels closer to her or wants to reconnect with Edie later when she then experiences that trauma. So is trauma something that is connecting girls? Um, yeah. I think so, maybe. Um, I think, yeah, I think, like, in that, yeah, in that story, 
the narrator the narr- yeah the narrator is sort of like experiencing this like sense of formless formlessness when she's around Edie and sort of like being in this world that is like part this world part another world and she's never quite sure where she is and like the ground feels like sort of like formless beneath her feet when she's with Edie but she's still like she can still like go home to her sort of like stable house and like be on flat ground but then later in the story her mother dies and she sort of like enters into her own state of formlessness um and sort of and like that's yeah I think in that story also like that's sort of when she becomes susceptible to sort of like some of the the bad things that like Edie has already experienced and I think part of what I was thinking about was like when and why are we susceptible to stories that aren't ours or like bigger cultural narratives um and I think like yeah it partially is that formlessness of like not knowing quite where the ground is um yeah okay I think I have one last question before we open it up. And that's, um, there are two sorts of moves I see happening in the book. One of them is uh, where you sort of weave in um, other things, like um, there's the, the Joyce's Nausicaa that gets woven in. But then there are also moves where you sort of move through time, right? So I wanted to hear, um, and this is just the thing I'd personally like to know, what your writing process is like. If you wrote these things and then wove them together, if you had to write them from the beginning to get to where you were, like skipping from thing to thing, because we like move between bits of research sometimes, and just what that process looked like. Yeah, um, yeah, a lot of them, it was a lot of research, and I feel like that's sort of, like, that sort of, like, fragmented feel is sometimes, like, because of that. Um, yeah, I think I, I do write them, like, sort of, like, as they're, as they read, like, like, one thing after another, um, although not always, like, sometimes, like, I don't know, sometimes I know the ending, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. Um, I feel like I I sort of have to hear, like, a voice, um, and I I hear, like, a first line or, like, a last line, and then, I don't know, and then I'm just sort of, like, trying to, like, write towards that. Um, Yeah, I think, yeah, and the process is... um, Except for the last story, which I was, like, working on for, like, several years, like, sort of, like, on and off, I did write them sort of, like, one one at a time. It's so. amazing. Several years. I mean, it's yeah, a long story. But it felt really long. That's commitment. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't think it would ever like come together like until like the very last moment. It's my favorite story in the book. I'm glad you worked on it for two years. <laughs> All right. Did you guys have questions? So, <laughs> uh, so I'm actually like interested in short story collections as like a form because they're so different from novels and like they don't like necessarily fall into like a natural order. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like how you went about ordering the book, like what you put in, what you left out, like what, mm-hmm. just what the like the process, not so much of writing it, but of like sort of assembling it into like a, a coherent thing was like for you. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I think. I... I think it was sort of like a happy accident that like the first story that I wrote was also is also the first story and the last story I finished is also the last story but I do think that there was like a kind of maybe like a progression in my work that happened and so I was sort of like um 
I don't know, trying to order them to reflect that. I think, um, yeah, like the first story is sort of like, I think, I think there's a movement towards the end of like moving towards other people like in, in little ways. Um, I think of like each story becoming like more relational, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, like I think, yeah, like, yeah, I think like her, um, like speaking to Gracie is sort of like, oh, like that, that should be like the end. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It was, it was, it was fun. It was like fun trying to like figure out what order they should be in. Yeah. It's really beautiful reading. I can't wait to read this book. I was actually wondering if you could, um, did you have any um, influence on the cover? Because I love the cover. Oh, okay. Um, and I, I'm, um, I'm curious, like, if you had thoughts on it, like, if you contribute to it and why, I guess, like, I love the cover. Okay, thank you. Um, I I contributed the idea. Um, I I sort of like wanted to. I really wanted to design it myself, but they wouldn't let me. Um, uh, the I don't know. The first cover mock-up that, they, that the designer sent me actually was um, like. Like I had told, I had told friends like as long as it's not like a pastel tinted girl staring into the distance, and as long as it's not a corpse, it'll be fine. And it was a pastel tinted corpse staring into the distance. <laughs> so I and I so I was just like very like I tried to like send like a, a nice email, but like strongly worded email that was like I would really like to like not. Move away from imaging of corpses or deadness in any way, since that's already like very clear in the title. Um, I I wanted the the heart um, because it, it sort of connects to the the final story, um, and I yeah, and I and I did want it to sort of be read as a book about um, not so much about literal deadness, yeah. Thanks, right. you guys. Oh, sorry. Ask you about your after bath. Oh, yeah. Will you just tell us a little bit about why you chose it? You can read it. Okay, yeah. Taking Brandy's place. And- I'll read it. <laughs> All you. Um, <laughs> uh, this is from uh, James, the poet James Fenton. Um, it is not what they built. It is what they knocked down. It is not the houses. It is the spaces in between the houses. It is not the streets that exist. It is the streets that no longer exist. It is not your memories which haunt you. It is not what you have written down. It is what you have forgotten, what you must forget, what you must go on forgetting all your life. And with any luck, oblivion should discover a ritual. Um, yeah, uh, that's a hard question. I think, yeah, I think I really liked, um, yeah, this, the, the idea of, like, yeah, in-betweenness and sort of, um, that what a, what a, sort of, like, tension between what is absent and what is present, um, how that connects to memory, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, I would so like for you to talk about the, I know you have like a sort of novel ruminating. Mm-hmm. I'd like to hear about that. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> I, um, 
I feel like I'm really bad at talking about what I'm working on because it, not because I'm like superstitious about it, but because like I don't really know. <laughs> it's just sort of like like little threads are sort of like I feel like I'm throwing out little threads and like at a certain point they start to like connect, hopefully, but maybe not, um, and then eventually I sort of figure out what it is I'm writing about. So right now the little threads have to do with um, the newspaper where I worked in Cambodia, um, which I thought I would not write about for a really long time because it just seemed too big and too hard, but it was um, like shut down by the government recently. Like the government is like cracking down on, on media and like opposition and um, so suddenly like the fact that it no longer exists exists made it somehow easier to start writing about. Um, and yeah, I yeah, that's sort of like that's like one of the one of the threads. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Brandy. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.